So Revelation chapter 5, let me read it for us. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for revealing yourself and for revealing your purposes to us. We thank you for doing that in the Bible as a whole. And we thank you particularly this evening for how you've done so in the book of Revelation. And we pray that as we think about those truths in Revelation 5 this evening, you would give us what we need in order to overcome, 
to be faithful followers of you right to the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, I uh, recently found out that there's a whole genre of literature, uh, fiction, based around alternative histories. I wonder if you've ever come across any of those kinds of books. They explore big what-if questions. What would the world look like if history had gone differently? It isn't a new thing, apparently, as usual. I'm just about a million miles behind the curve. Uh, So, for example, in the 60s, there was a guy called Philip Dick who wrote a book called Man in the High Castle, uh, which has recently been made into a TV program. Uh, And it explores what the world might have looked like if Germany and Japan had won World War II. And whether you've read any alternative history stories or not, you might still have contemplated that kind of idea before yourself. What the world might have looked like now if history had gone differently? What if the Roman Empire had never fallen, for example? Would I be speaking to you in Latin now? Or think more recently in world history, what if Rosa Parks had got up from her seat? Would the civil rights movement have begun when it did? The reason I'm speaking about alternative histories at the beginning of our time together is that in the passage that we're going to be thinking about together this evening, our author, John, is forced to contemplate an alternative history. Only it isn't for entertainment purposes. The big what if that John contemplates in Revelation 5 is this. What if God's plan, his script for where all of world history is ultimately heading, doesn't happen? And as we'll see this evening, that prospect leads him to weep. Now, as Robin mentioned, we're carrying on our series in the book of Revelation this evening. And last week, we looked at chapter 4 together. And at the beginning of chapter 4, something pretty amazing happened to our author, John. He noticed a door standing open into heaven. And he heard the resurrected Jesus Christ saying these words in chapter 4, verse 1. Come up here, said Jesus, I will show you what must take place after this. John is invited into heaven to see the course of world history as it will play out. And at the beginning of chapter 5, it's all part of a piece, it's all part of the same vision. John is still in heaven, and we see that that plan, God's plan, his script for where the world is ultimately heading, is written down in a scroll. Just look down at chapter 5, verse 1 with me for a moment, and we'll see that together. Chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now that might seem like a bit of a strange idea for the the future of the world to be written down in a scroll, But it isn't a new idea in the Bible. It's used by two Old Testament authors, by Daniel and Ezekiel, both writing hundreds of years before John wrote Revelation. And in fact, John ends, sorry, Daniel ends with a description of just such a document. 
It's a book about God's ultimate plan for the world. And it tells of his judgment of his enemies and of his salvation of his people. And in the last few verses of Daniel, that book is shut and it's sealed only to be opened at the end of time. God's ultimate purposes for this world, his promise to judge and to rescue, promises that we even thought about in Mark 13 this morning, would only happen when that book, when that document was opened. And that's the kind of document we're dealing with in Revelation 5. It holds God's plan to make everything right that is wrong in the world. But when we reach Revelation 5, there's a problem. Just look with me again at chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one can open the scroll. No one is worthy. No one is able to open the scroll. And that isn't just an issue because if no one opens it, then, then we won't know what God's plan for the world is. It isn't just that John wants a peek into the future. The reason that's an issue is because unless this scroll is opened, that plan, God's ultimate plan for the world, won't happen at all. His plan to bring justice, to make things right, and his plan to save his people all down the drain. That's the prospect that John contemplates in Revelation 5. Now, as a heads up for where we're, we're going to go this evening, Revelation 5 should ultimately give us confidence. Because, as we'll see, what John contemplates in verse 4 is an alternative history. The reality is that God's plan will come to pass. There will ultimately be justice and judgment and salvation. But before we get there, we're going to try and understand why John weeps at the prospect of this alternative history, a world where God's plan for the universe won't happen. And as we do so, we might even do some weeping ourselves. We'll do that under our first heading this evening, verses 1 to 4, contemplating a world where no one can open the scroll. Now, part of the entertainment of alternative history fictional books is that the authors are able to be pretty imaginative about what might have happened if world events had gone differently, because we don't really know for sure that's the whole point. So we might speculate that even if the Roman Empire hadn't fallen, uh, that I wouldn't be speaking to you in Latin tonight, because the Romans were scared to come to Scotland. They thought it was a barbarian place full of hairy, scary folk. I'm not quite sure what gave them that idea. But in Revelation 5, we don't have to speculate about what would happen if no one could open the scroll, because we find out what's written in it as we read on through chapters 6 and 7. And in fact, even if we didn't have Revelation 6 and 7, we'd know enough from the content of the books in Daniel and Ezekiel to know what's at stake. And so we know, for example, that if the scroll isn't opened, there is no prospect of ultimate justice in the world. 
no justice. Now, you might have seen in the news over the past couple of weeks uh, that a 93-year-old man called Bruno Day has been tried and convicted in a court in Hamburg in Germany, 93 years old. And he was convicted for his complicity in the death of over 5,000 people whilst working as a guard at the Suthof concentration camp from 1944 to 1945. Now, only a fraction of Nazi criminals and collaborators were convicted at the Nuremberg trials, and others have managed to evade prosecution since. They've concealed their war records, assumed false identities, and gone into hiding. And it's thought, actually, that Bruno Day might be one of the last to be tried and convicted, because most others have now died of old age, or they aren't fit to stand trial. So let me ask you, what kind of justice can we hope for, for people who were complicit in that kind of mass murder, and who were then able to assume new identities and live out the rest of their lives in relative peace? What justice? Well, I guess if you're an atheist, your answer has to be none. This world's all there is. They managed to evade human courts and justice systems while they lived, so they got away with it, didn't they? Now, isn't that a painfully unjust thought? Well, in Revelation 6, as the scroll is unfurled, and in fact, in Daniel and Ezekiel, we see that part of God's plan for the world is to bring about ultimate justice, to rightly judge all evil and darkness, even the evil and darkness which seems to have been gotten away with in this life. And that means that what John's staring down the barrel of in Revelation 5, as the scroll can't be opened, is the prospect of that not happening. No ultimate justice. And as well as that prospect, the prospect of no justice in a general sense, he's also confronted with the prospect of there being no justice for Christian martyrs. That's another part of what's revealed in the scroll in chapters 6 and 7, that Christians who have been martyred for their faith will one day be vindicated. And that was very close to home for John's first readers. John was writing to to seven fragile churches in first century Turkey, and some were facing persecution and difficulty for following Jesus. In fact, we see in chapter 2 that was a man called Antipas, who was part of a church in a place called Pergamum, who'd been martyred for his faith. And so as John contemplates the prospect of a world where no one opens the scroll, he contemplates a world where that martyrdom was to no end. No vindication for those Christians who've died because of their faithfulness to Jesus. It was all for nothing. And it's a bitter, bitter thought. But as if all of that wasn't enough, in chapters 6 and 7 of Revelation, and again in Daniel, we see that the scroll also contains God's plan 
to rescue people, to save people for himself. And so we have it. No hope of justice, no hope of vindication for Christian martyrs, no hope of ultimate salvation for God's people. No hope, no hope, no hope. And so we begin to understand why John might weep. Not least because of the situation he found himself in as he wrote the letter. We mentioned this over the past couple of weeks. John's writing the book from the island of Patmos. He'd been exiled there for being faithful as a Christian. And as he addressed the seven churches he was writing to, he described himself as their brother in tribulation, their brother in patient endurance. John and the churches he's writing to are suffering as Christians. And if there's no prospect of ultimate justice in the world, no vindication for persecuted Christians, no salvation at all, when all hope is gone, then why bother? Why bother patiently enduring? Why bother putting up with tribulation? I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And as well he might. Now it is worth spending time in the valley with John, weeping with John, so that we understand and we feel what's really at stake. But though we start in the valley, as John does, we then move with him to the mountaintop. We'll do that under our next heading this evening. Verses 5 to 10. The conquering lion is a slain lamb. Just look down to verse 5 with me again. John writes this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one. There is one who can open the scroll, one who can carry out God's plan for the world. And as it turns out, he's got some elaborate sounding titles. He's, he's both, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Now, both of those titles, again, are from the Old Testament, this time from, from Genesis and from Isaiah, and they were used to describe the king whom God promised to send, who would ultimately rule over the world. And the following verses in Revelation read like a description of that king's coronation. So just look on with me to verse 7. As we read verse 7, the one on the throne, this glorious, inapproachable king of the universe whom we hear about in Revelation 4, he hands the scroll to this king. Verse 8, the living creatures and the angels who in chapter 4 were crowded round the one on the throne, they're now falling down before this king. It's like a coronation. The new king is bestowed with power to rule. And at the same time, it's, it's like a victory parade for a victorious military general. Verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This is the one who's worthy to open the scroll, the one who can enact God's ultimate purposes for the world, God's long-awaited conquering king. Now, with all that fanfare, what do we expect the conquering king to be like? 
majestic and regal-looking, perhaps. A four-star general. Well, just notice what John sees as his eye settles on this conqueror. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has conquered, who can open this scroll, who can bring God's ultimate plans for the whole world to pass, is a lamb. And not just a lamb, a lamb that looks like it's dead. Now that's a surprise, isn't it? It surprised me as I was preparing for this evening that, that he managed to conquer despite looking like a dead lamb. But actually, as we read on in Revelation 5, the remarkable thing isn't that this king has conquered despite looking like a slain lamb. The remarkable thing in Revelation 5 is that it was by the very act of being slain that he conquered. He won a great victory by dying. And that's why he's qualified to open the scroll. Just look at what the angels sing to the Lamb in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was, say the angels, by his blood that he conquered, that he ransomed people, that he bought them out of slavery. And so God's conquering king didn't conquer at the head of an army, but on a cross. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and to make all of God's ultimate purposes for the world, purposes of judgment and purposes of salvation come true because he was slain. Now, there are a couple of, of implications of that that I think are worth fleshing out for a few minutes. And the first of those implications is confidence. Now, people through the ages have, have tried to use the book of Revelation to pinpoint the exact moment that Jesus will return. So, in the late 70s, there was a guy called Hal Lindsay who took a stab in a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. He studied his newspaper closely, and he tried to map what Revelation says will happen at the end of the world onto current events. And his estimate was that Jesus would return no later than the end of 1988. A swing and a miss, you might say. But Revelation 5 says that we don't need to trawl the newspapers to identify the event which guarantees the future of the world. Because that event has already happened. There was a similar point implicit in Mark 13 we thought about this morning, about the destruction of the temple, but it's absolutely explicit in Revelation 5. God's plan to ultimately judge and to rescue 
That plan that we see and we read about in Revelation 6 and 7 will take place, and we know it will, because Jesus has already died and risen again. So your future hope is grounded in historical fact. That's the point of Revelation 5. Just notice, for example, the the tense in verse 5. He has conquered. Past tense. It's already happened. And actually, Revelation 5 takes us further than that. Because it tells us that, that Jesus' death and resurrection has already secured the first fruits of what that future, of what that the ultimate future of the world will be like for God's people. We already have part of it if you're a Christian. Again, just notice the tenses in verses 9 and 10. Read through verses 9 and 10 with me, if you would. The Lamb is able, is worthy to open the scroll, verse 9, for you were slain, past tense, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, still past tense, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, still past tense, and shift the future tense, they shall reign on earth. Because Jesus died and rose again, if you are a Christian, you have been ransomed, set free from slavery. You are part of a kingdom of priests. And because all of that has already happened, you can be absolutely confident of what will happen in the future. Jesus will return in judgment and salvation. Now just take a moment and think of how that might help John's first readers in those seven fragile churches in first century Turkey. Think of what it would do for John himself. Flagging and embattled under the pressure of false teaching, the pressure to be like the world around them, the pressure of persecution. What's going to keep you going in the middle of all of that? Hope based on kind of wishful thinking? Kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that things will turn out okay in the end? Now, what will keep you going is certain hope. Knowing what's going to happen in the future and knowing it for sure. That there will be an ultimate reckoning for evil. That martyrs will be vindicated. That you will reign with him. And what John sees in Revelation 5 guarantees all of that because it grounds those future hopes in historical fact. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has already taken place in time and space history. And so he will come again in judgment and salvation. Hang your hat on that. Now, if that was true for those seven churches that John was writing to in the first instance, well, then it's true for us too. When you begin to wonder whether it's really worth keeping going in the Christian life, whether it's opposition or the temptation to compromise morally or theologically when it's wearing you down, where do you look to for strength to keep you going? Well, John, and in fact Jesus himself, would not have you crossing your fingers. He wouldn't have you trusting in some kind of vague hope that things are going to pan out all right in the end. He would have you ground your future hope in historical fact. Jesus will return. 
He will judge those who have opposed him. He will rescue his people. How can you be sure? Look at the cross. Jesus has won. He has conquered. You've been ransomed. You're part of his kingdom. And that means that your future and the future of the world you live in is guaranteed. So keep going. Remain faithful to him. But although this, the, the whole book of Revelation was written in the first instance to, to churches, to Christians, it does also have implications for those of us who don't yet know Jesus. See, my illustration earlier about hunting down Nazi war criminals might have made us all feel our own desire for justice. At least I hope it did. But it might also have implied that the dividing line between people who are worthy of God's judgment and people who aren't is the dividing line, say, between me and Heinrich Himmler or Nikolai Ceausescu or Saddam Hussein, between normal people and mass murderers. But that isn't the dividing line in Revelation at all. The dividing line in Revelation falls between people who have rejected God, who have rebelled against him, and those who haven't. And the problem is that there's only one who stands on the those who haven't rejected God side of the line. His name's Jesus. Everyone else is on the other side of the line, you and me included. All of us have rejected our maker. And so in some ways, the irony is that God's perfect justice, the justice that we all so long for, actually means that we should be judged too. And that's why the Lamb in Revelation 5 is such a big deal. The God of the universe loved you so very, very much that he sent his own son as a sacrificial lamb to the slaughter. So that that justice that ought to fall on you and on me for a rebellion against our maker would instead fall on the lamb. That's how the lamb conquered. That's how he ransomed people for God. And so the question that leaves all of us with is whether we will acknowledge that rejection of him, acknowledge that by rights we should face the judgment for that rejection, and yet claim that lamb for yourself. Ask him to be your rescuer, your conqueror, your savior. Now, what he says will happen, will happen. He has conquered, and so he will return in judgment and salvation. And the question, the burning question that leaves all of us with, even this evening, is whether you will bow the knee before him now. Now, there is one final implication of this chapter that I want to end our time thinking about together, and we'll think about that under our last heading this evening. Verses 11 to 14, the Lamb is worthy. 
Uh, now, there was an article in the press a few years ago about wildlife tourism in Africa. And uh, as part of the piece, uh, there was an interview with a safari guide. Uh, and the guide was basically asked to talk about all the stupid stuff that he'd seen tourists doing during his time as a wildlife guide. Uh, and he told the story of leading one group on safari in a national park. And uh, he woke up one morning to find that one of the group was missing. So he asked the other group members uh, where she'd gone. And they told him that she was out for a run. Obviously not realizing that in a national park, there were wild animals around, and that a lion, she was the equivalent of a morning croissant. And so uh, the guide jumped into his Land Rover, and he set off to find her. Unfortunately, he found her a few minutes later. But when he, he told her she'd have to get into the car and go back to the camp, she was completely oblivious to the danger she was in. And she was actually quite angry with him for ruining her run. Sometimes, it's only by knowing the danger that you're really in that you really appreciate why being rescued is such good news. Now, what John stares down the barrel of at the beginning of Revelation 5, in a nutshell, is a world without Jesus. And that prospect leads him to weep. And it helped us to see what bleak a situation our world would be in and what bleak a situation each one of us would be in were it not for Jesus. And I do hope that reflecting on that prospect helps us to see and to feel what's at stake with the Christian faith. Particularly for those of us who've been Christians for a while. We can become a bit pedestrian about the good news of Jesus, can't we? Many of us can't really remember a time that we weren't Christians. It's all very familiar to us. And so we might go a bit lukewarm. But when we stand alongside John in Revelation 5, verses 1 to 4, and we stare down the barrel of a world without Jesus, we might start to feel why it's such a big deal. Because without him, without Jesus, there is no hope. No judgment, no justice, no vindication, no salvation. That's what's at stake. But because he has conquered, there is hope. Real and certain hope grounded in historical fact. And the tone of Revelation 5 reflects that change. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through the chapter a few minutes ago. So the weeping of a world without Jesus in verse 4 is replaced in verse 8 with singing. And the volume builds through the chapter as the choir grows bigger and bigger. In verse 11, the choir, wonderful numbering here, the choir numbers myriads of myriads. And by verse 13, well, there isn't a creature in all of creation who isn't singing the praises of the one on the throne and the Lamb. And so if you're a Christian, well, can I encourage you as you think on Revelation 5 to join them, to praise him and to thank him and to rejoice in him this evening.
to praise him for his victory. That we need not face a world where there's no prospect of ultimate justice, no prospect of salvation, because he has conquered. To thank him for what it cost him to accomplish that victory. That it was by his death that he ransomed you and made you part of his kingdom. And to rejoice, to rejoice in the hope, the sure and certain hope, that you will one day reign with him. Worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let's bow before him now. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Our God and Father, we come before you in praise this evening as the author of world history. And we thank you for sending your son as a sacrificial lamb to die the death that we deserve in order that we might be ransomed, free from slavery. We thank you for the certainty that that gives us, that because you died and rose again, Lord Jesus, we know that you will one day return. Would you please fix that sure and certain hope within us this evening? Not just for its own sake, but that we would be those who conquer, that keep going all the way to the end. For those who haven't trusted in you yet, we ask that you would impress upon us all the stakes involved when they decide whether or not to follow Jesus. And we ask and we plead this evening that someone would bow the knee before the Lamb for the very first time and cry like those elders in Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people like me for God. We ask all of these things in the name of that Lamb and for his sake. Amen.